The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. I would bring your attention to the scripture reading for this morning from Malachi 2, 10-16. It says, Have we not all one Father? Have we not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he had no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Kyle. Let's pray. God, we come before you praying the prayer that we see in Proverbs 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake us, that we would bind them around our necks, write them on the tablet of our hearts, so you, God, will find, that we will find favor and good success in the sight of you, God, and of others. Lord, we pray that we would trust in you with all our hearts and to lean not on our own understanding and in all our ways acknowledge you, that you might make our paths straight. So we pray that you would do that for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. It has been said that the historian Edward Gibbon attributed the decline and fall of Rome to five reasons. Number one, he says, the rapid increase of divorce or the undermining and the, of the dignity and sanctity of the home, what he calls the basis of human society. Number two, higher and higher taxes and the spending of public money on bread and circuses and other frivolous entertainments. Number three, the mad craze for pleasure with sports becoming increasingly more exciting and more brutal with each passing year. Number four, the building of gigantic armies to fight external enemies far away in other lands when the deadliest enemy, that is the decadence of the people, the moral decline of Rome's people, 
lay within the empire. And five, the decay of religion. Faith fading into mere form, losing touch with life and becoming impotent to guide. Now, if that's not a commentary for our country and in our day, in our age, then I don't know what is. But we're not alone in this digression. For Israel also experienced such decay, at least in terms of its view regarding marriage in Malachi's day. They too experienced a rapid increase in divorce and an undermining of the dignity and the sanctity of the home precisely because of the fifth reason that Gibbon gave. The decay of their faith fading into mere form. Because Israel's priests in chapter 2 failed to guard the knowledge of God, seek God's instruction, the nation not only declined spiritually, but morally as well. You could say, as goes the church, so goes the home. And as goes the home, so goes the nation. If home life collapses in a rapid, large-scale fashion, empires and nations will soon follow. Jesus says in Mark 3.25, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. In the aftermath of World War II in the 1940s and the sexual revolution of the 1960s, our country experienced a significant widespread surge in divorce. And although divorce rates have fallen in recent years, marriage rates have fallen right along with it. Meaning that more and more people have either chosen to not get married or to cohabitate. Benefits without commitment. And so as with Rome, as with Israel, the dignity and the sanctity of the home remains undermined in our time and in our place with women and children often experiencing, though not always, often experiencing as a result more negative consequences than men. In fact, that's what we see in today's text. In today's text, we see the men of Israel perpetuating the same trend by divorcing or never marrying believing spouses, instead choosing wives for themselves who worship other gods. And the issue has its root in idolatry, with man thinking that he knows better than God as to how he should live. So what do we do with this most basic, this most important of human relationships, the marriage relationship? And how should we then live? Which leads us to the main idea of our text today. That is, be faithful in your marriage to your faithful believing spouse so that number one, your worship pleases God, and number two, your faithfulness cultivates an environment to raise godly offspring. Now, to give some context, back in chapter 1, in verses 1 through 5, God had reminded his people that he had sovereignly elected them to be his. They had returned from Persian exile some 100 years prior to that. They were still under Persian rule, with their land reduced to a mere fraction of its former glory. 
As a result, they had forgotten God's love because their sinfulness had caused them to experience God's judgment. So God called them in chapter 1 of verses 6 through 14 to give him their best for he is worthy. Instead, they brought God their worst, offering sacrifices that were blind, lame, and sick. And so God cursed them, and he specifically cursed the priests in their failure in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, to give honor to God by guarding knowledge and seeking his instruction. And as the priests had gone, so had gone the people. You could say that one unfaithfulness led to another. And so in today's text, we see a practical outworking of unfaithfulness to God manifested in unfaithfulness in marriage. And unfaithfulness in marriage, let me just say, on the part of the one who commits unfaithfulness, often begins with a strained or non-existent relationship with God. Meaning that if I fail to honor God, Seeking his instruction, repenting of sin, and, and seeking uh, his, his forgiveness, eventually my strained relationship with God will result in a strained relationship with my spouse. The implication being that for my part, if I want to be in a right relationship with my spouse, I need to be in right relationship with God. Because Israel ignored their relationship with God, a practical outworking of that unfaithfulness resulted in a perverse and self-serving understanding of marriage. Which brings us to our first point this morning in verses 10 through 14. We see that marrying or yoking oneself with unbelievers profanes God's covenant and nullifies worship. In other words, if we forsake intimacy with our spouse and cultivate intimacy, sexual, fantasy, or otherwise with another, whether they be believer or unbeliever, we fail to worship God in ways that he prescribes. And we profane, vulgarize, and violate God's covenant promises. In fact, we see in verses 10 through 12 that those who violate the marriage covenant face God's punishment. He says in verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? So he begins by asking two rhetorical questions, both with an affirmative answer. We have one father, one God who created us. And in calling himself father and not just creator, God uses covenantal language signifying his special relationship with his people. Yes, he is the creator of all, but he is the father of his people. And so then he asks, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? As their father, God had covenanted with his people in relationship. They, in turn, should emulate that covenant-keeping behavior by marrying among God's people. Not only was that the custom of their forefathers prior to Moses' day before the law was given, but it was expressly forbidden later in the law to marry outside the faith. Deuteronomy 7 commands them, do not intermarry with the nations. Why? For they will turn your children's hearts away 
from following God to serving other gods. In Malachi's day, Israel had kept the forms of worshiping the Lord, but they ignored his word. Now, perhaps you're not married, and you might be thinking, what does this passage have to do with me? It's this. We might keep the forms of worship and ignore God's word. So I ask you today, as you're hearing God's word proclaimed, am I just going through some motions this Sunday? Or am I just going through the motions throughout the week? Have I kept the forms and ignored his word? That's what we see here. And as a result, they married outside the faith. They married things of the world. And in so doing, they violated, they profaned God's covenant. Now, the word profane refers to treating something that's meant to be holy as ordinary or common or even as unholy. In this case, their marriages looked just like the marriages of the world. In fact, if you notice statistics, Christian people kept pace in our country with divorce just as much as the world did. So, in a way, we have kept some of the forms without truly following his word. We see here that Judah, it says, as he goes on, has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned, listen to this, the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So specifically, they profaned God's covenant, now God's sanctuary by marrying women, from the pagan nations around them. They married unbelievers. What they did was so egregious, in fact, that God compares their intermarriage to false worship and idolatry. And then they have the audacity to present themselves before the Lord in worship as if they had done nothing wrong. Now, God had called his people to be a holy nation in Deuteronomy 7.6. He called them to be his sanctuary in Psalm 114.2, but apparently they know better than God as to how they should live. And that decision comes with consequences. Verse 12 says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. God takes marrying outside of the faith so seriously that a curse comes upon those who profane this covenantal obligation of marrying inside the faith. What that means is is that God does not see marriage as a means of evangelism, meaning that there is no justification for marrying an unbeliever in the hopes that you might influence them to convert. Now, I realize that that sometimes happens, but perhaps more often it does not. We see this actually in the example of Solomon. Even though Solomon was the king, arguably one of the most powerful men in the world in his time, it says when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God in 1 Kings 11.4. So if one of the most powerful men in the world could not influence his wives to follow the Lord God. What makes us think that we can? In fact, what makes us think that we won't be negatively influenced to not be solely true to God? 
because influence works both ways. So we must obey God rather than man or, or even woman. Which brings us to verses 13 and 14. We see that God rejects the worship of those who violate the marriage covenant. This is incredibly serious. He says, and this second thing you do, you, you cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning. Why? Because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Violating this covenant grieves God so much that he cannot accept worship from the one who violates it. Now, permit me for a second to open the aperture just a little wider. Because not only does the violation of a marriage covenant grieve God to the point of him not being able to accept worship, but we see throughout Scripture that any habitual sin keeps God from accepting worship and answering prayer. In Jeremiah 14, he says, Thus says the Lord concerning this people, They have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Which results in God saying, I will not hear their cry. God does not even see their sacrifice. He does not hear their prayer. Instead, he sees their sin and the destruction that it causes. So let me ask you this. Were they marrying outside of the faith because there were no spouses to be had inside the faith? No. They followed instead the lust of their own hearts and their own fallen, faithless reason. And then they come crying, saying, but you say, why does he not? That is, why doesn't God accept the offering? Because, he says, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So apparently they'd been married to believing spouses, but divorced them. They put them away to pursue relationships with unbelievers. We see this chronicled in the book of Ezra. One commentator says these women were being cast aside like an old garment for something new and fresh and exciting, but thoroughly worldly. Whatever had been there as holy matrimony has now been replaced by profane fornication. They had violated their covenantal obligations to their spouses. In his book, God, Marriage, and Family, the theologian Andreas Kostenberger presents three models regarding the nature or the view of marriage, contractual, sacramental, and covenantal. Some see marriage as a sacrament or as a means of obtaining God's grace with its root in church law. Others see marriage as a mere contract between two individuals to be formed, maintained, or dissolved whenever one or two parties wishes to with its root in civil law. And yet still others see marriage as a covenant or as a sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted by and entered into before God with its root in divine law, as we see here in this passage. I think this third model where we see marriage as a covenant is the most faithful to Scripture. 
we as Christians see or should see marriage as a covenant, not as a means of dispensing God's grace or as a mere contract to be made and dissolved whenever we should so wish it, but as a sacred, intimate human bond that has cosmic implications as we will see here in this passage. But unfortunately, they took a contractual view of marriage and thereby they broke covenant with God and with their believing spouses and in essence, covenanted with the world. Now, if you're already married to a believer or perhaps you're not yet married, you may be tempted by now to entertain a self-satisfied self-assurance, perhaps thinking, well, he's not talking about me this morning. I'm, I'm off the hot seat. But this passage is for all of us. For all of us are prone to wander away from God. We're told in Matthew 5, 28, that everyone who looks at a person with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his or her heart. They, we, have broken covenant with God in our hearts. But this isn't as it should be, for we are members of Christ's body, according to 1 Corinthians 6, and should therefore flee sexual immorality, for a sexually immoral person sins against his or her own body. You were not your own. You were bought with a price. Here we see Jesus purchasing his bride, keeping covenant for us on our behalf. So what should we do as a result? Glorify God in your body. It does not glorify God to join with someone, not your spouse. It doesn't glorify him to join with someone that's not a believer, whether it's in fantasy or in actuality. But let me be clear here that this text in no way suggests that a believer divorces an unbelieving spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, in fact, makes clear that you stay married to that unbelieving spouse so long as they are willing. Even still, we see that God's intention is that we would be equally yoked, believer to believer. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says as much, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what what, uh, fellowship has light with darkness? Let me ask you this. Do you want a surefire way of stunting worship and spiritual growth in your life? Well, go ahead and marry or covenant with someone outside of the faith. Now, for those perhaps already in the situation of being a believer married to an unbeliever, let me just say that God is is so good and God is so gracious and he will uphold you. And he commands you to stay in that situation. Be faithful, and God will be faithful to you. You're not in sin, and God loves you. And he will use the situation that you're in to bring glory to his name. In verses 10 through 14, we see that knowingly marrying unbelievers profanes God's covenant and nullifies worship, which brings us secondly to verses 15 and 16, where we see that remaining faithful to your believing spouse guards against divorce and cultivates an environment to raise godly offspring. Now, let me just say this. Surely God remains sovereign 
And he can surely raise up godly offspring, even in cases of divorce, unfaithfulness, and unbelief. The God who created the heavens and the earth and condescends to come to earth to live perfectly, die vicariously, and raise victoriously can do whatsoever he wills. Now, with that said, God still calls us to faithfulness. We should not put him to the test by justifying sinfulness currently in our lives, saying, well, I'm going to pursue what I want for now, and God can clean it up later. No. God would have you for your part be faithful. And so he says in verse 15, did he, that is, did God not make them, that is the believing couple, one with a portion of the spirit in their union? So in other words, God had made them one flesh, united in mind and in spirit with the spirit of God in their very midst. This is very special. And as they share the same faith and serve the same Lord, they will then extend that faith to the next generation. Because what was the one God seeking, it says? Godly offspring. The one God created them to be one flesh in a covenantal, God-fearing marriage to cultivate an environment where godly offspring could be raised. If both spouses show themselves to be devout followers of God, they give their children better opportunity to be properly influenced towards becoming devout followers of God themselves. Now, let's be careful here because we need to be reading this in context. We understand from chapter 1 that it is God who elects whosoever he wills to be his. Even still, by placing children in a God-fearing home, influence happens early and often. God sees this as a good thing for both the children and the parents. So it tells us to guard yourselves in your spirit and let none be faithless to the wife of your youth. Now again, surely God is able from stones to raise up children for Abraham. Again, he can raise godly offspring without both parents being devout believers. God can use any means necessary to accomplish his ends. He has and he will. But this is no excuse for us to use any means possible, in this case, disobedience to God in marrying outside the faith in the hope that the ends be the outcome we desire, in this case, godly offspring. No, for our part, we need to be faithful. We do not need to put the Lord our God to the test, as we see in Deuteronomy 6.16 and Luke 4.12. And I realize this this requires constant vigilance. It needs the help of the Holy Spirit in a way we can't do on our own. And we see as we go on in the text that the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Now, commentator after commentator confesses that this is one of the most difficult Hebrew text to translate. As some of you probably have a translation that says, God hates divorce, and others say something about the husband. And so, are we talking about God's hatred of divorce, as these translations say, or the hatred or the lack of love of the divorcing man to his wife, as other translations say? Now, regardless, this much is clear. The man who breaks the covenant of marriage a covenant that goes all the way back to creation in Genesis 2.24, commits a grievous offense against God, 
violates creation order itself by nullifying that covenantal relationship with both God and his wife and deeply damages his character or covers his garment with violence, meaning that God sees divorce as violence against victims of divorce, be it the children or the married party trying to stay in the marriage. But that's not how we see it, is it? We cut it off like we would cut off a gym membership. I'm not really doing much here. I might as well just go somewhere else. But it wreaked havoc. It wreaked upheaval in both their lives and in the lives of the victims. More to the point, it actually wreaked havoc in society as a whole. More heinously, though, it violated God's covenant, a covenant he loves. Jesus says in Matthew 19 that what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we see that Malachi concludes, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So let me ask you this morning, how might we guard this most intimate of human relationships? Allow me to share four principles of how to care for marriages in particular and how to care for all relationships in general. First of all, communication. With this principle in mind from James 1.19, be slow to, or be quick to hear, right? Slow to speak, and when you do speak, Communicate humbly. Communicate patiently, but more often you should listen intently with your whole attention and listen in a non-disruptive fashion, not thinking what to say next. Yeah, it amazes me every time I get the opportunity to preach or teach how much I struggle with the very things I'm going to go deliver. Like this has just been a really hard week for me for listening. Just didn't listen very well at all. And so, more importantly, we communicate with God in prayer consistently because you and I, we need a lot of help if we're going to realize this kind of thing. Secondly, attitude. And I'm speaking specifically of an attitude of gratitude. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 commands us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. That's the attitude. Attitude has to do with perspective, not circumstance. This is something I think we can all learn, right? Attitude has to do with perspective and not circumstance, meaning that two people could be going through the same terrible circumstance and come at it with two entirely different perspectives. One is joyous, victorious, resilient, moving through it, passing through it. The other person is cast down. So it has to do with how we see things, not what we're going through. Let me give you a for instance. When a robber robbed the theologian and pastor Matthew Henry, the great commentator, he had this to say. He said, let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. In other words, this isn't something he experiences every day. This is terrible, but it's not something, this isn't normal life for me. Second, he says, because although they took my coin purse, they did not take my life. 
Well, that's some perspective right there, right? How much did I really lose? I've got what's important. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much, which indicates where his treasure lie, right? Not in his pocket, but in heaven. And fourth, he says, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. That's a godly perspective. That's a, an attitude that is resilient in seeking the Lord despite any aggravating circumstances. Let's have that same attitude in our relationships with one another. So communication, attitude. Thirdly, reconciliation. With this in mind from Mark 5, 24, to first be reconciled to your brother or your sister and then come and offer your gift to God. Marriage, as in any relationship, is the union of two good forgivers, right? I had a professor who made the analogy that we should treat forgiveness the way football players treat fumbles. What happens when the ball is fumbled? You don't see players standing around, assigning blame, haughtily declaring, it wasn't my fault, waiting for the offending member to get up, saying, well, he dropped it, he should pick it up. Isn't that how we treat forgiveness sometimes? The person who messed up needs to be the first one to do something? No, that's insane. Instead, what do they do? They just dive on the ball to recover the ball. Well, in the same way, we should dive on forgiveness to recover reconciliation. Whose fault is it? Who cares? There will be time for that later if we see patterns of sin emerge. Otherwise, when it comes to conflict, we need to be as honest and as generous with the other person as we would with ourselves. We need to keep current We need to be non-reactive, and we need to focus on solving the problem rather than assassinating the character of the other. So communication, attitude, reconciliation, fourthly and finally, expectation. With the mindset given to us in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. That's... That's, that's the problem, isn't it? And we see often, too, that problems happen in the gap between expectation, what I hope things are going to be like, and reality, what they're actually like, right? Maybe you didn't marry the wrong person. Maybe you just have the wrong expectation of marriage, as if it were meant to make you happy, rather than to make you holy. And yet, an unmet expectation often does lead to frustration, doesn't it? I will confess to you, this is actually my biggest problem of these four, which really just leaves me two options. I can reduce my expectations, or I can improve my performance. Now, both of those sound kind of hard, So I guess I'll just lazily make it harder on myself by continuing with high expectations and low performance. And on and on we go in the fight. No, no, no. In Song of Solomon 2.15, the bride warns her beloved, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil 
the vineyard, she says. In other words, watch out for the cute, cunning little things that seep in and destroy your relationship. Foxes are small, but do not underestimate the damage they can do. Foxes are smart, but for their benefit and not for yours. Foxes are pretty, but they cannot be domesticated. Little things destroy love. Little things destroy love. For instance, when David saw Bathsheba, it has been said that a little laziness, and what I mean by that is David was supposed to be out at war, wasn't he? A little laziness led to him standing out on his roof, just taking a little look, which led to a little call, which led to a little touch, which led to a little baby, which led to a little murder, which led to a little curse. This is serious. Malachi gives us three warnings in this passage. Divorcing a believer and or marrying an unbeliever, number one, destroys worship. Number two, hinders producing godly offspring. And number three, damages the covenant of marriage. So let me ask you this. What is actually at stake here? Why would God place such a high emphasis on marital fidelity? Because the gospel itself is at stake. Ephesians 5 will later reveal this to be a gospel issue. In Ephesians 5, God compares the relationship between a spouse, between a husband and a wife, with the relationship between Christ and his church. And just as our relationship with God is meant to be primary, permanent, exclusive, and intimate, so is our relationship with our believing spouse. God designed marriage to provide an earthly portrait of our relationship with him. Now, I think it's pretty evident, as I've spoken, that no marriage is perfect. Certainly mine's not. Usually it's my fault. Uh, At least that's what I'm told. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But it's going to take real commitment, isn't it? It's going to take real work. It's going to take constant repentance, a lot of prayer, and God's power to remain faithful to the covenant of marriage. It will take attentiveness in a way that the world does not always know. And so as God remains faithful to you, I implore you, remain faithful in your marriage. And knowing that we cannot remain faithful in our own strength, God sent his son, Jesus, to be faithful to God in a way that we never could. And when we realize our broken, sinful condition, repenting of that, asking that God would cover that offense by the blood of the cross, by the blood of his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life and died an atoning death and arose victoriously in resurrection, we might be forever changed to live out of God's strength who kept the covenant on our behalf and gives us the ability to keep covenant with our spouse. But outside of God's grace, we are God and marriage profaners. All of us need God's help 
And all of us need God's forgiveness. None of us have gotten this completely right. But there is mercy, there is grace, and there is forgiveness at the cross. God wants your marriage relationship to work because it is a picture of his relationship with you. And so as God has taken all of the initiative to make this relationship with us work, so we as Christians should do likewise in taking all of the initiative we possibly can with our spouse. So let me ask you today, what initiative might you need to take? Where have you been on cruise control? And of those four principles of caring for relationships, where might you need to grow and change the most? How might you guard yourselves in your spirit and not be faithless 